Should we pray as we come to God's word? Let's pray. Father, God, thank you that it's not the work of our hands, Father. Thank you that it's not our goodness that brings you to, the, to us to you. But Father, thank you that it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, pray that we would learn much of him this morning and learn to love him more from what we see. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are you thirsty? Don't worry, there is tea and coffee afterwards, and the mince pies, apparently. I do think November is a little bit early for mince pies, but uh, I'm probably still going to have one, let's face it. Uh, But I wonder what the thirstiest you've ever been is. For me, uh, it was a time when I went to live in France, I went to live in France for a year, and I had to pack a, a suitcase for a whole year. And uh, basically, I had to sort of couldn't hear a backpack on the back, suitcase in hand. And uh, I had to get to the airport, onto a train, then through the centre of Paris to another train, because I had to change train stations. I had to run because I needed to make a connection. I didn't have a clue about the layout of the station, so I'm running through the station. And this was the days before you had Google Maps on your phone. So it was uh, getting lost. I just had a nightmare. Had to run, no time to stop, and I only just made it to the train, got on, and I was sweating cobs. I was exhausted. I sat down only to realise that in my rush, I hadn't stamped my ticket. So in France, before you go on the train, you have to stamp your ticket. If you don't, you get fined. And the only way then to not get fined is to find the train conductor who was already running down, going down the train. So I had to run the length of a very, very long train to try and get him to stamp my ticket. And when I got back to the cabin, I was close to exhaust, like falling over. I was really close to collapsing. Thankfully, there was a vending machine right next to the cabin. And I bought some uh, branded orange juice. And to this day, I think that was the nicest drink I have ever tasted. I was so thirsty. I was so exhausted. My mouth was so dry that to me, it's still the sweetest, nicest thing I've ever tasted Are you thirsty? In our passage today, the Israelites are (coughs) thirsty. Probably thirstier than you or I have ever been. They're in uh, the Sinai Desert, and they have no water. They're going to die if they don't get some. This is a life and death situation. They're facing a very real threat to their existence. And yet, instead of turning to God, we find in our passage they turn against God. They rebel against Moses and against God. And this incident is is a rather famous one in the Bible. It's picked up at least eight or nine times in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, in Matthew, in Psalms, in Hebrews, in 1 Corinthians. The Bible makes a big deal of this incident, of what happens here when the people turn against God. And this morning, we're going to see why this is such a big deal. And in fact, this has a lot to say to us this morning. As we've been saying all the way through the book of Exodus, these Israelites here are held up as an example to New Testament believers. In the Bible, they're shown to us, this is how you don't do it. This is the negative example. This is how not to live. This is how not to respond. And nowhere is that more true than here. Here is one of the low points of the Old Testament from a New Testament perspective. So what is it that's so bad? And what is it that we so desperately need to avoid? Well, first of all, a tough situation leads to testing rather than trusting. Let me read to you uh, verses 1 and 2 again. 
All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The Israelites, again, face a very difficult situation. It sounds similar to an incident from a few weeks ago with bitter water, but this time there is no water whatsoever. They're in the desert, and as we've said, if you have no water in the desert, you die. This is a hard situation. Let's not downplay it. It's not like they're after cake. They're after water. But we know throughout that the Lord has been testing Israel, training Israel. The whole idea of this is that they're supposed to learn something. He wants to train their crisis reflex, if you like, to be one of faith and not of fear. One of trust rather than one of terror. But as we've been seeing, the Israelites are very slow learners, probably a bit like ourselves. Even in this situation, mere months from the bitter water incident, mere weeks from the one where manna started to fall from the sky, we're back to square one. Worse, really. Moses says here that they are now testing the Lord, putting the Lord to the test. And it's the same word as used in chapter 15 and 16 for what God was doing to them. But here, the people are doing it to God. Now you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with it then? If God can do it, then why can't the people do it? But what they're doing is reversing the roles. They're putting themselves in the place of God. They're making it as though God has something to prove. As though God is in the dock and needs to provide evidence of his character. As though God owed them something rather than it being the other way round. So think about it in Jesus' day. The Jews in Jesus' day demanded signs, didn't they? Now Jesus did tons of signs. But he wouldn't give them to people who had that attitude of testing. He would only do it with people who already had some sort of faith. Or when the devil tempted Jesus to throw himself from the top of the temple, he was asking Jesus to force God to perform a sign, if you like. And instead, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. Which, interestingly, is about this very incident. This is what it says. We're probably very familiar with the first half. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the first half, is what Jesus says. Second half is, as you tested him at Massa. Which is what we're doing here. This is literally where we are. But this should lead to some soul-searching on our part. What happens when we find ourselves in tough situations? It's easy to point the finger at them, isn't it, putting God to the test. But do we test, or do we trust? Does not even come into the picture when we meet those difficult situations. Do we cry to the Lord, or do we moan to a friend? You see, when we hit difficult times, situations don't dictate our response. There was a Taylor Swift song a few years ago, written about a fallout that she had with another singer. And the title of the song was, Look What You Made Me Do. But the other singer hadn't made her do anything. She chose to react the way that she did. Or think about that classic psychologist's phrase, how did that make you feel? You know, I don't know much about sort of stuff, that's always what I imagine the first question is, isn't it? 
But it makes it sound as though the events themselves cause the emotions in you. If that were true, then everyone would feel the same about the things that happen. But they don't. Emotions are complicated things, aren't they? But there is an element of choice in them. We're not just animals, we're human beings made in the image of God. We have dignity. We're responsible for our feelings and actions. And when things get tough, we have a choice. We can choose to some degree how to respond. We can choose to cry out to God in prayer. Or we can choose another path, like the Israelites did. Moaning, grumbling, bitterness, self-pity. There is not an inevitability that that when things are tough, that we must respond in a particular way. Some of the strongest testimonies to the gospel are when things are hard and people have continued to trust in God throughout. People expect us to be angry, to be bitter, to feel hard done by, to blame God or demand that he act. But we can confound those expectations by choosing to trust God instead. Do we trust or do we test? Well, the Israelites chose wrong. They chose to test God and their actions reveal where they are. And so our second point, hard hearts lead to hard words and heartless Mm -hmm. actions. Let me read to you verses 3 and 4. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Because this is such a famous incident in the Bible, we actually have a lot of information about what's going on on the inside of the Israelites. Psalm 95, which is backed up by two chapters in Hebrews, tells us that the problem here is their hard hearts. So this is what it says in Psalm 95, verses 7 to 9. Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, when they put me to proof, though they had seen my work. The psalmist says here that the problem is that they hardened their hearts. Now that's a bad enough thing on its own, isn't it, if you think about it, hardening your heart. But think about this in terms of the rest of the book of Exodus. Actually, who is it who hardens his heart in Exodus? It's Pharaoh. What the people are doing here is God speaks to them, as God reveals himself to them, is they're responding like Pharaoh did. They're treating God like Pharaoh did. And what happened to Pharaoh? He incurred God's wrath and judgment. So they really are flirting with disaster. They're putting themselves on a collision course with Almighty God. And it shows us that in themselves, they're no better than the people God has just judged to rescue them. And they show that in the way that they speak and the way that they act. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, here, their hard hearts overflow in hard words. Verse 3, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're speaking to Moses, their leader. But really they're saying, Moses, you're a murderer. That's who you are. You're a murderer. 
I wonder whether there's an echo back to Exodus 2, where one of the fighting <coughs> Israelites said to Moses, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Did you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? It's as though they're saying, well, once a killer, always a killer. Finished with the Egyptians, have you? Coming after us now? Moses has had a rough road all the way through. But now it's getting worse. They don't just accuse him of wanting to kill them. But also, if you read it, they accuse him of wanting to kill their children. It's not just who brought us out to die. You brought out our kids to die. Child killer Moses. And their cattle too. Cow killer Moses. But their words tell us nothing new about Moses. We know about Moses. It tells us everything though about the state of their own hearts. Words have a way of doing that, don't they? They reveal the person. Their hard hearts pour out hard and harsh words for Moses, who's done nothing wrong. He's doing everything that God has asked him to do, and yet he still faces this barrage of abuse. Hard hearts lead to hard words. But also, secondly, they lead to heartless actions. In verse 4, Moses cries out to the Lord. He says that the people are almost ready to stone him. Now, there's no hint here that Moses is being overly dramatic. The Lord does not rebuke him for exaggerating. It would seem that the people really are ready to stone their leader. If you think about it, there's a certain irony here, isn't there? They accuse Moses of wanting to kill them, when in reality it's they who want to kill Moses. They're the ones with murder in mind, not him. It reminds me a bit of the Pharisees in the New Testament who accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker and then plot to kill him. Jesus doesn't do anything wrong, but they are. Who's breaking the law? Not Jesus, them. We see the same irony at work today even. Christians are often excluded from some circles for being supposedly intolerant of other views. Yet actually, who's being intolerant in that scenario? Isn't it the people that are excluding? It's part of our human condition, you see. We tend to see the best of motives in ourselves, and we tend to see the worst of motives in others. And that's what they do with Moses. They assume he's out to kill them. But they won't get a chance to act out their vicious plot to kill him. God will actually step in and stop it. But we've got to think about, does that make that any better? Their hearts wanted to see Moses stoned to death. Does the fact that God steps in and stop it make him any less guilty of what they're doing? You're left with the impression that if God had not provided water, that they would have gone ahead and done it. Does God stepping in absolve them of what they were going to do? Now don't hear me wrong, there is a difference between doing and not doing. You might be tempted, for example, to have an affair and then decide not to because it would be wrong and that would displease your Heavenly Father. Great, you've overcome temptation. That's a good thing. But how often is our not sinning down to other factors? You would have had an affair, but you were too scared that you'd get found out. You would have lied to someone, but you're a terrible liar, and you'd be immediately found out. You would have slept with that person, but they didn't want to do it. You would have shot that guy, but you don't own a gun. So often we don't sin. It's not because we're godly. It's because we're goodless or gunless. 
So it's not that our hearts are holy. It's that we haven't been able to do what we wanted to do for some reason. And that's what happens here. Their plans have been prevented. Their sinful natures don't get chance to give birth to sinful actions, sins. But sometimes hard hearts do get their own way and give full vent to their desires. James speaks about this in the New Testament, James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, a hard heart. Then when desire, uh, desire is fully, uh, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what happens, that's the sort of end of the line. But here, God rescues them from being able to express their sinfulness to the full. It's what theologians call restraining grace. God doesn't let them act as bad as they might want to. Personally, I praise God for restraining grace in our world and in our lives. It stops us from so many things. But Moses doesn't know that yet. As he prays, he thinks his life is in danger. Although they don't act to harm him, they did speak to harm him, but they don't get a chance to make that into action. But Moses is clearly worried here. He fears death from stoning just as much as the people fear death from dehydration. But the difference is, whereas the people complain and condemn, Moses cries out to the Lord. He yet again models the right response in those crisis situations. And yet again, he stands before God for the life of the people. And seemingly his own life here too, he acts as a mediator for the people. And God answers him. And that's our final point. The striking of a rock leads to life-giving water. Let's see the answer to his prayer. Have a look at verses 5 to 7. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrelling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? In response to one of the most famous rebellions in the Bible, God gives one of the most wonderful miracles in the Bible. He has Moses go before the people, head held high, with some elders, presumably the ones that haven't joined in with this. He has them take his shepherd's staff, the very same one that he had used to turn the mighty river Nile into blood. The one he had used to bring disaster on the Egyptians. He was to take that rod and strike a rock, a boulder, at Horeb where they were camping. And out of the rock would come water and the people would drink. God would yet again provide for his people. But something much bigger is going on here. So much so that when a similar incident occurs later in the wanderings in Numbers 20 and Moses messes that up, it's that which stops Moses entering the promised land. It's actually that that God says, because you've done that, you can't go in. 
So this is a really serious incident. It might seem a little harsh at first, perhaps, but when we get the new perspective, a New Testament perspective, sorry, on this, it begins to make more sense. The incident is picked up in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 1 to 4. If you've got a Bible, you might find it helpful to have a look at it. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. It said, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The rock was a picture, a foreshadowing, a type of Christ. And what is happening here then is a picture of the cross. Moses is to strike the rock at the rock with a staff of cursings, the staff that turned the Nile to blood. Now Moses' staff gets lots of use, but that's the use that's mentioned here. Okay? It's the rod that had brought judgment. And the rock here is broken by the rod, split, cleft, as the old hymn that we sang before puts it. And from it flows life-giving water. Perhaps this is why when Jesus' body is broken on the cross and pierced with a spear, such a big deal is made of the water that flows from his wound as well as the blood. Jesus is that rock that was struck that we might have life. His body was broken on the cross so that we might have what Jesus called living water. Water that wells up to eternal life. Water that when we drink it, we need never be thirsty again. Water that truly satisfies the soul. Jesus is the source of that living water. His death on the cross, the breaking of the rock, that is what provided So what is it, though, that Jesus is talking about? What is this living water? Well, he tells us in John 7. John 7 says this, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This living water that he's talking about is talking about the Holy Spirit. The one on whom God would send to every believer on Pentecost onwards, from Pentecost onwards. The one who would indwell believers and apply the life-giving power of the cross into the lives of individual believers and into the church as a whole. The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world through his death on the cross. And the Spirit comes and satisfies us with what Christ did at the cross. And when we drink of the Spirit, as he brings us to the work of Christ, we need never thirst again. The only reason we would thirst is if we abandoned that fount of living water, if we turned aside from what Jesus offers through his Spirit. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? But yet, that's what we do every time we try and go it alone. Jeremiah 2. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, 
and have hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. You see the picture? Jesus stands and offers us living water, fountains of living water, final thirst-quenching life in the Spirit. But instead we try and get by on puddles, ruddy, muddy puddles, systems that we dug ourselves because we didn't want the life that God offers. We do that as unbelievers as we trust in what we can do ourselves. We like to be self-made people. It's all about what I do. Our own systems that I dug. But the gospel is not DIY. It's D-O-N-E. Done by Christ. The rock that was struck in our place. We must come to him for our salvation. For that living water. But we can equally do it as believers, can't we? When we try and live by what we can do ourselves. When we just try and get by without Christ. But the gospel is not try harder, it's trust harder in what was done. That changes the heart as we trust, isn't it? That's a heart thing, which in the end is what we need. The problem is our hard hearts. This is what needs to change, this is what we thirst for really, isn't it? So this morning, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for what Christ offers? Well, our passage would say, come to him. Come to him and drink. Come to him and be satisfied with what he offers. As Jesus himself said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Well this morning, let's come back to him. Let's drink again from all that Christ offers. Our rock who was broken and uh, cleft for us. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he was broken in our place. Father, thank you that he was, he took the rod of judgment and punishment so that we don't have to. Father, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you for this wonderful picture that we see here. And help us, Father, to drink. Father, not to turn aside from that fountain of living water, but to honour him by drinking and drinking and drinking again. Help us, Father, to keep coming to him rather than trying to do it ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.